consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Iris Cahill Cassiano, Licensed Psychologist, who will be talking about her work in an area of interest, Creativity as Self-Care. Welcome to the show, Iris. Hi, Noah. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's good to have you. So, so tell us, uh, what are your credentials and experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a licensed psychologist here in Texas. I graduated with my PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Texas at Austin oh, back in 2020. So right at, in the midst of the whole COVID pandemic thing. Um, so that that's an interesting thing we can get into if, if our conversation goes there. But I've been uh, in full-time practice since then. I, I did my internship at a university counseling center, completed my postdoc hours, and um, as of this year, starting in October, uh, launched my private practice, and I'm really excited to share this with the world, I think, you know, just the nature of where we're at in society right now and all of the different issues that are impacting our communities, we need mental health support and there's no stigma around that. It's just, we need to be here for each other. And I, I really see that as an important part of my work. So, you know, I was thinking about this the other, the other day because it hadn't occurred to me. Um, you know, there are people right now who are doing their internships and practicums or have done their internships and practicums like primarily telehealth, Mm -hmm. which is interesting to me that, you know, now we have some clinicians up and coming who have really only practiced via the internets, you know, that's Mm -hmm. interesting Mm -hmm. to me. Oh yeah. And, and it makes me wonder too, like on, on one hand, I think virtual slash telehealth has really opened so many doors 
in terms of accessibility, especially for folks in rural communities or, you know, maybe folks, I, I think about, you know, people who are juggling maybe two jobs or have many responsibilities and it's hard to make carve out time to drive to a clinic and then see someone and then drive back. And so and maybe the- not get paid. And maybe not get paid. Exactly. They're taking unsupported leave to try to take care of their wellness so they can do a good job and and be there for others. Um, Yeah. So this helps address some of that. And it's also different in lots of ways to, to doing things in person. So we'll see how this continues to evolve. I straddled the fence like half of my internship year was in person and then the other half was all virtual so um, there's good to both. There's some disadvantages to, to both formats too. So really when you're thinking about fit, like even that, that modality, whether you go in person or, or do it virtually is another thing to think about for sure. What have you noticed, like in terms of your experience of in-person versus telehealth? Mm-hmm. I think so one of the big things, and, and I'm not the only one that has noticed this, lots of folks and and therapists and even even clients will say this to you when you're in person you're sharing a physical space and that often feels really different like you're you're with another human being and it feels more like you're with another human being and of course we can see the nonverbals and and all that good stuff so that's maybe one of the big differences for me one of the big differences is um, I often incorporate a lot of arts-based activities into my work And so that could involve something like drawing, painting, uh, making something, an object of some sort, but there's like this creative energy. And to do that in a shared space feels really special. And I think about, I've done it in both. I've done it in person then, and I've tried to do it virtually. And something is missing about that shared making experience with another person you know, when we're talking about in-person versus online. So there's, there's something about that shared space that you don't get. On the other hand, when we think about that virtual space too, um, you still are connecting with someone. There is that accessibility like we were talking about earlier. There's also ways to incorporate other tools. So um, for example, a lot of clients that are maybe a little bit younger enjoy doing a lot of digital art you can totally share that way more easily in a virtual format. Like I will have clients share a screen with their tablet and they can be drawing something and we're looking at it together and talking about their process while they're working through it would feel a little bit different if we were in person, I'm hovering over their shoulder. Right, right. But here we're, that is the space that's a virtual space and we're sharing it together. So that's pretty cool. And, Um, So like I said, for me, I I resonate with the virtual format. It it works for me because I can incorporate these technological tools and all of that good stuff. And it's still a creative space and a healing space. Um, But I also understand for for folks who want more of that in-person or tactile kind of experience. Makes sense. Iris, what's the name of your practice? So my practice is called Brava Vita Counseling. Um, and that we came up with that name. I've been, I was talking about this with tons of, you know, my friends and colleagues and trying to think about what felt similar, what felt close to me or what resonated with me. Um, and it was really just this idea of, you know, we're in this world together and it takes a lot of courage to oftentimes overcome those challenges that we face or even just be, to be here, right? That takes so much bravery, it takes so much courage. 
So we really thought about this idea of, of living life bravely and being there with somebody to help them engage with life that way. So I like that idea of like the brave life. And I also wanted to incorporate parts of like my own culture and, and my identity there. And so I, I really resonated with that name versus, you know, picking something else in, in English. So that's how I landed on that. Okay. And, and just so our, our listeners know, Sala Espanol. Sí, sí. Soy bilingüe en español. Um, so I, I could, I was about to just keep going in Spanish too. <laughs> and I was like, suddenly Noah, your, your podcast became a Spanish language podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I could only understand so much, like, sabe yeah. poquito español, you know, yeah. mi español es muy mal. <laughs> oh, no, no, pero you understand it, right? And like, when we, we'll, we'll talk, probably talk more about this later too, but thinking about connection with others and within our community, sometimes it's just understanding the nature of a language, being able to draw in some of those words, that gives you so much like this feeling of actually being seen, of being heard, being recognized, having your culture being honored. Like it, it's a beautiful thing. And, and you don't have to be a hundred percent bilingual for that, but I, that can be such a welcoming experience for someone. You know what my favorite Spanish word is that I'm kind of obsessed with? Mm-hmm. Pantufla. Pantufla. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> For, for our listeners, can you, can you say what that means? Pantufla. Oh, my goodness. So, so this is where maybe it would be helpful for you to walk us through it because I am more of a Caribbean girl and pantufla. That's true. Yeah, it's yeah. not in my vernacular. No, no. Really? Mm-hmm. It's not. Really? Yeah. <laughs> now I have to look this up. Um, I believe it's a, a slipper is what slipper. it is. Oh, yeah. no, we use chancla. Chancla is another one, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm looking. There's a clothing company. No, I'm going to look for a Spanish translation. Hold on. Maybe well, it's... You look uh, it I'll share this yeah. with your listeners. Yes. Um, so uh, I grew up in Puerto Rico. I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Puerto Rico and then, you know, went back as an adult and all of that. So for the longest time, whenever you'd go to a straw and you need a straw, you would ask for a sorbeto. And then one day, this was like after we got to Texas, like back in like 2006 around there, um, we asked for sorbeto and the person was like, we don't know what that is. And then they <laughs> pointed to it and they were like, oh, you mean popote. And I was like, what? <laughs> We had never heard that before. So, so this is, this is great. This is a great reminder that even though we can all be part of a community like the Latinx community, and there's still so much diversity and beauty within that too. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It's slipper. Pantufla. Yeah, that is, that must be, that must be the, the Mexicano roots because we, I, we don't hear that in Puerto Rico. It's just a silly word. I, don't, I can understand why you wouldn't hear it. Puerto Rico. <laughs> it's great. When you said it, I was like, oh my gosh, pantufla sounds so great. <laughs> okay, enough about pantuflas. Um, so Iris, at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? So I'm currently not paneled with any insurance companies. And part of that reason is, you know, it's it's a difficult decision. And I'm definitely still navigating that for myself because insurance does provide greater accessibility. Um, and I, and I recognize that part of where I have some concerns is 
insurance companies are often not great with providing the mental health care benefits. And I, I worry that sometimes it contributes to stigma around mental health and that everybody has to have a quote unquote billable diagnosis, which means you've got to leave a therapy session with something that will follow you the rest of your life and could have an impact on you. Um, and these insurance companies, they require so much information about you that in my opinion, sometimes really isn't their business and can again have a negative impact on folks in the long run or in some ways. And I know, like I said, I feel some conflict around that because insurance does help with the accessibility piece. So some of the things that I do to kind of help offset that is I also do contract work with Doctor on Demand, which, and they are credentialed with or paneled with lots of different insurance companies. So that's often a good avenue for folks who maybe, um, I, I can't work with them directly because I'm not paneled with the insurance. They can still work with me through Doctor on Demand um, and that they use their full insurance benefits and, and they handle all of that stuff. So it ends up being kind of convenient for the client as well because they don't have to worry about billing issues and things like that. So that's kind of how I'm navigating that right now. I, like I said, since I'm relatively new in, in the realm of private practice, I don't know that that'll be my model longer term because there is that social justice piece of like, well, insurance does help people get access to their care. Um, so yeah, still, still thinking through that in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, insurance is a, it's a constant internal struggle as a therapist, I think. Um, Cause you're right. It certainly does increase accessibility, but there's all these other things that come along with it that ultimately, like, you know, I accepted insurance for a few years and it ran me down. I had to work twice as many hours to make, you know, just as much money as my peers or just even to, you know, make a decent living. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have also, I mean, the other thing, one thing that I came across recently, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I work with the trans and gender diverse community. Yeah. And um, I'm working with a, uh, a client who was originally like asking to use their insurance. And I'm glad I didn't just blindly accept their insurance because um, this person is seeking therapy. Family would not agree with therapy. Is still on parents' insurance. Yes. If if I had submitted a claim, that claim would have caused an EOB to have been sent to the parents, the policyholders. Yep. And then the parents would look at, oh, who's Noah Garcia? Do some research, Noah Garcia. Trans stuff, what? You know? Yep. Um, yep. So, you know, that that's just scary. Oh, 100%. And I've heard, you know, just earlier today, I was talking with some colleagues and um, I won't name the name of the insurance panel, but there's one in particular that audits regularly and mm -hmm. wants to know everything about your client. And if they're not ready for, in like the example that you just gave, they're not ready to come out. They're still exploring this, this stuff for themselves. And then to have to be so vulnerable and have all of that be exposed to somebody that we don't know what they're going to do with that information or how it's right. going to be used. I, I take issue with that from a safety perspective for the folks we work with. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do you have a sliding scale or reduced mm -hmm. fee structure at your practice? I do. I do indeed. And um, 
one of the cool things about like being in private practice and not being paneled with insurance is that I have the flexibility to do that. Um, And it's based on folks' income, what they feel is reasonable for them to afford in counseling. Um, We'll work through it. I I don't have, not every slot that I have in, in private practice is sliding scale, but for me, it's prioritizing what the folks need and how we can help them. And I, I won't, don't want money to interfere with care, if that makes sense. I see, so yeah. I, I will absolutely um, work with folks around that. And if their situation changes and or they land a good job or, or something changes, we adjust the fee accordingly. Um, but really, it's about where they're at, what is accessible and affordable for them and, and helping them with what we can do. Okay. So is it more of a traditional sliding scale where where you have like poverty guidelines or is it more like reduced fee, like what somebody is able to afford at that moment for a certain period of time? Yeah. Yeah. It's more than reduced fee. Um, Again, like I said, not like super structured because that, again, that's another thing too, where like, I'm not going to demand financial statements from persons. (laughs) So there's an element of trust here. Um, and, and the truth is therapeutic relationships are built on trust anyway. So I, I don't have issue with that. Okay. Do you have weekend or evening appointments available? I do. I have a lot of week de- weeknight, like late evening appointments. Um, I'm available for weekend appointments on request. Um, those don't tend to come in too often since I think folks are enjoying their weekends too, which I'll be honest, that's what I want for folks is enjoy their life. So (laughs) if you need me on a Saturday or a Sunday, we can talk. Um, but definitely weeknights because a lot of my clients are working during the day or, or going to school and they have classes and they have responsibilities and in the evening, it just works out really great for them to have a space for themselves and for their care. Okay. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Oh, I am so glad you asked this, Noah, because um, I actually took a very tangential path to psychology. It all makes sense, but um, I actually started off my professional life wanting to be an artist, um, a graphic designer, to be in fact, to, as a matter of fact. Um, so I did the whole thing. I my undergraduate degrees. I have one in fine art and I have one in art history. was totally convinced like I was going to get into the art world or I was going to be a graphic designer on the side. I also loved art history. And so I was like, yes, I'm going to become an art historian and do museum education. So um, I did all that. I got my master's in art history from Boston University and graduated back in 2013 um, or 2011. I'm sorry. Nope, 2013. Gosh, okay, this is this is how you know you're getting old when you're like confusing <laughs> dates on things. Um, but yeah, I got into working at the Blanchon Museum of Art right there in Austin, nice. as a matter of fact, and loved it. Loved the art gallery space, loved leading the groups. Um, I was actually in charge briefly with the, of the docent program, so like helping train docents and, and working our group tour schedules, and then also doing some gallery teaching. And it was in that space in particular that I started to realize that what had attracted me to art all along is our stories as humans, right? And, and our ability to connect through artwork, though. 
And so I realized like I was less interested in things like who painted what and what century and, and all of that kind of art history stuff. And more like, why do we care about that image? Why does that speak to us? What is it speaking to us about? And why are we connecting with it? So long story short, I realized I was kind of in the wrong field, <laughs> that I was really way more interested in that connection with, with people through artwork, the stories that we tell, whether it's visual stories or you know spoken narrative. And that's how I found my way into counseling psychology, um, which when, when choosing between the two, I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. They're um, so research oriented, or at least clinical psych programs are very research oriented. And I was like, nah, nah, I got to be with people and, and talking about all of these experiences together. Um, so that's how I ended it up. I still keep up my art practice. It's a big part of my self, my personal self-care is I cannot imagine a life without creativity um, so whether that's drawing, I'm, I'm primarily a drafts person, so I do a lot of drawing, um, but I also play music and I love museums. I love going to listen to music and sharing that with others. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful thing when we're in that shared space and we're experiencing the same work of art, but we're all experiencing it in a different way. Um, and that's pretty cool. As is life. Absolutely. <laughs> Well said. It is life. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, art is life. Life is art. Um, so what would you say it is that like just ultimately drew you to being a therapist? Like what was it that hooked you and you know there were, you knew there was no looking back? Oh, well, so there's a, a story that I share in particular. And it was while I was still gallery teaching. So I was still working at the Blanton. And um and actually, I was teaching, I was adjunct art history faculty um, at a small school, not at UT. And I had taken some of my students for a field trip to the museum, and we were looking at some of the stuff. And there's this one painting, it, it should still be hanging, it's part of the Blanton's permanent collection. So listeners, go and check this out. If you haven't been to the Blanton, go and enjoy that beautiful space. And look for the Joan Mitchell painting. It's this very large canvas um, with with splatter. So if you know the work of Jackson Pollock, Joan Mitchell was a contemporary of his and very much into that expressive abstract art that was just, it's beautiful, um, but certainly maybe not a traditional kind of beautiful. And that's what I ran into with one student in that space who was like, I hate this work. I just hate it. And I remember sitting with him, looking at it and being like, okay, but tell me why, like, why, why, why were you having such a reaction to this piece? It's, it's a lot of bright blues and some pink and yeah, it's messy, but I, I personally, I wouldn't have called it um, ugly or have had that kind of a visceral reaction to it, but it was so curious as to why he did, you know, and he sat with it and all this and that. And I remember him saying, you know, I, I hate it because it reminds me of my life. It's a mess. And I was so shocked. I, I didn't know what I was doing at the time too. This was very like novice Iris did not know the calling of psychology or therapy at the time. And I remember sitting with him and just seeing like, no, like, first of all, like, no, this is not a mess. And I, and I asked him like, is, is it completely random? Is it completely messy? And he took a moment and he thought like, well, you know, maybe you know, the colors kind of do work together and ah, oh, you know, maybe maybe it's not all horrible. 
And I was like, oh, okay. And then I, I, I kind of ran away because I didn't know what else to do in that moment. But at the end of our, our field trip, our, our tour, he comes up to me and he says, you know, I thought more about that painting. Maybe it's not all that bad. Maybe there's, there's like some meaning behind all of that. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh, he's not talking just about the painting. And oh my God, like I had like all of these feelings inside. <laughs> Um, and that's that's kind of when I realized, like, ah, yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the wrong field, um, and so that that's when I felt that calling and totally shifted gears. Um, and hoping I can still evoke moments like that with our clients. I mean, we do that every day. That that one aha moment that like this is your life, and and we can make something of that for you that's meaningful, that's fulfilling. What do you want that to be? Ah, it's it's such a wonderful feeling. That's an awesome story. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little more about yourself. Like, what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you listen to, pets, kids, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, don't get me started on my four-legged furry babies. I love my pets. <laughs> um, I... Gosh, my entire life, I've always had an, an animal companion. I, I, I struggle with the word pet because there's so much more than that. They are members of the family and they, they give so much to us unconditionally. So I have a, a kitty. Her name is Mona and uh, she is very saucy and very much an independent lady, but that also loves the cuddles. So, <laughs> uh, but in terms of like my personal life and interests, like I've already shared with y'all, I'm, I'm definitely, I, I hesitate to use the word practicing artist because I think some of that sometimes feels a little bit like, oh, artist, very like lofty. Um, but I am a practicing creative. Like I love doing something different and bringing characters to life, whether I'm, I'm sketching or doing a portrait and or just enjoying something silly, like getting an origami kit at Michael's and then making a beautiful paper crane. Um, that's just beautiful because it exists and we brought it together and, and made it happen. So I, I love doing that. I love my creative practice um, and my music. Um, I'm also really connected to the out outdoors in a lot of ways. I love nature and, and, and the fact that, you know, if we can take some space out there and kind of enjoy what our earth has to offer, I think more of us would take better care of it in a lot of ways. Um, so I always try to give myself that space. And, and let me tell you, at the end of a really long work week where, you know, and I love my work, so this is not a knock on the work at all, but we feel tired and we need uh, some space to kind of get refreshed and, and restore our energies. And that happens outside. Like you go for a walk, you get some fresh air, you feel some sunshine, or, you know, even, even more special, you go out on one of those really misty, Texas mornings where like the, the fog kind of covers everything in front of you. And it's such an ethereal space. Um, you do that. And that just, it, well, for me, at least it fills up the gas tank in a way that not much else can. So always encourage folks, including you know, family members too, as like get out, enjoy this world while we have it. And while it's, it's beautiful and, and around us. Why I'm moving to the beach. <laughs> Makes total sense. Noah, you know what? Can you just like leave a little room in your car? I'm just going to grab a suitcase and join you. <laughs> You'll have to fight the dog for the front seat. <laughs> hey, 
I, I the back will be full of stuff. So <laughs> I will strap myself to the roof of your car because I will come between you and your co-pilot like that. You can't <laughs> mess up that relationship. <laughs> um, was there anything else you wanted to add to that? And, and also, like, I'm curious, mm-hmm. you know, being creative, I think the issue that I sometimes run up against in terms of like is making space and having space and time to, to really do that, allow oneself to fully engage and have the time to be able to fully engage, you know? hundred yeah, percent. So how do you structure that with your, with your time? So uh, I am going to share this with everybody and in also the spirit of full transparency, because it is so challenging to do this. And I want to normalize that, not in the sense that like we should just all accept it and that's totally fine, but normalize it in that like we all go through this struggle of, you know, carving out time for ourselves to engage in activities that are meaningful and fulfilling because we live in a world that bombards us with all of these messages. Like if you're not being productive in whatever way that that's (laughs) exactly, or, or, like, you know, you got to be productive. You got to hustle culture is the one that mm-hmm. really stands mm-hmm. out for me where it's like, if you're not doing something 24 seven, then you're wasting your life. And, you know, I will admit I sip that Kool-Aid sometimes where it's like, I gotta, gotta keep doing, gotta keep going, gotta keep producing. And then we, that's where we run into that tension or that friction between, well, I want to do something just for me, just for fun. And uh, should I? Or that feels selfish. That feels like there's so many other more important things that I should be doing. So or I'm so tired, you know. Or I'm so tired and I don't have energy for it. Absolutely. Um, the other part, and I think the tired element kind of plays into this too, is sometimes we have expectations for ourselves that if we're going to do something creative, it better be good. Otherwise, it's ugly or it's like not worthwhile and um, again, that that's tied into that idea of being productive and, and producing something that others will find valuable. But, but the truth is, if we recognize that it's not about producing a product, it's about taking the time to just enjoy something. Um, as cheesy as it sounds, it's not about the product, it's about process. Um, but that's true because, you know, that act of... of taking some time to make something out of nothing is in and of itself meaningful, regardless of whether somebody puts some aesthetic judgment on it and says that it has value for X, Y, Z reason. The fact that you made this, you did something, made something out of nothing, that's incredibly special, but it's incredibly hard to let go of that expectation that this better be good. If I'm going to take time out for it, it better be like, Picasso himself made it otherwise. Um, So I hear that. I hear that struggle. And I, and I, like I've shared with you all like that, I sometimes fall for that, that pitfall or, or make that mistake. And the, the truth is we have to remember when we do this stuff, when we're making, when we're creating, it's, it's about taking that moment to enjoy, but it's also satisfying this inner need that I think all human beings have that we want to share a story of some kind, whatever that story looks like. Um, 
and you know, visual art is is very much about expressing parts of ourselves and creating something visual, and, it, and it's always going to have a fragment of ourself in it, regardless of whether we're doing a a paint by number kit that we got at at a craft store or we're making something original. There's always a piece of you attached to that, um, and we just have to allow ourselves to connect with that desire and give that desire a voice. Which kind of brings us to um, one of the first questions regarding your topic, creativity as self-care. Why does creativity matter so much to us as human beings and why is it important to our self-care? Yeah, I, I think it does tie into that innate need to express ourselves. And there, there's lots of you know research out there and a lot of researchers who really dive into um, different aspects of creativity and, and why it speaks to us. Uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of that jargon here, but it really is essentially, it's something about expressing ourselves and wanting that piece of ourselves to be seen, to be experienced. Um, and creativity allows for others to experience that, right? Otherwise, we just contain everything inside of ourselves and no one's ever going to be able to to relate to that or see that part of us. So whether we're talking, this is why when we think about like in counseling or in therapy, talk therapy is absolutely wonderful, you're, but you're using a voice, you're still doing the same thing. You're still sharing a part of yourself. You're still sharing the story, this aspect of, of your personal narrative, um, whether you do that through the spoken word or through art, it's that same essence. And so that's why I think creativity is so important. And creativity also is about expanding our ability to see potential and to see different ways, different perspectives, different ways of approaching a quote-unquote problem. Um, it really is just about enhancing our ability to see things from, from different angles. Um, and creativity itself looks so different. I think um, I don't want folks to make the assumption that to be creative means you're a visual artist exclusively or a musician exclusively. The truth is, any activity where, once again, you are generating something out of nothing is creativity, right? So your creativity practice could look very different. It still reflects who you are. It still reflects part of your story. Um, and that still, we, we have that yearning inside us to make that be known. And so that's why creativity is so important. And, and the truth is, uh, I'm curious now if you've ever experienced this too, in parts of your life where other responsibilities and obligations get in the way of you being able to engage that creative part of yourself, something is missing. There, there's something about um, your day-to-day -day and, and uh, the fulfillment that you get from your day that's just not there. Um, and again, I think that's because when we don't make time for that, it, we notice it when we miss it and we don't feel great. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like this whole, I don't know why, uh, you've said it a few times and every time you say it, it catches, catches my mind. Um, something out of nothing, creating something out of nothing. Like when I think about that, I love creating, but not necessarily in your traditional creative ways. You know, I'm not an artist. I'm not a graphic artist. I don't, you know, I'm not talented in that way. But I do love to create something out of nothing. So yeah. what types of things would be considered creative self-care or 
create creativity as self-care, I suppose. Absolutely. So what I try to encourage folks uh, to think about is creativity. Again, that idea of you, you want to generate something something like we've said before, you're generating something out of nothing, but it, it also speaks to some aspect of, of who you are. And that can look like so many different things. Um, for, for example, somebody who might not even realize this goes into their closet and decides they're going to rearrange it in a certain way and is very intentional about like how they organize their clothes, the way that they the, the colors of their clothing kind of lines up if they decide to sort it a certain way or, or what they choose to hang up or, or fold. Like something as, as mundane as that is still an expression of that creativity because you are making those choices and those are choices that reflect parts of who you are and what speak to you. So even something like that is a creative expression. How we choose to hang purchased artwork on the wall, why we purchased a certain type of artwork, that's creativity speaking to us because we are making those choices of, of bringing that into our space and how we want to arrange them. So all of that good stuff can count. Um, other, other ways that I, I think about creativity for self-care with lots of folks, even folks who might be, um, I, I think about this a lot with clients I have that might um, be a little bit more STEM oriented and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not, I'm not artistic at all. I'm like, okay, but let's, let's dive into things that feel really creatively juicy for you. And, and it might be things like solving puzzles. Like there's this beauty in like being able to, to navigate a really tricky mind teaser puzzle and finding a solution that, that previously you hadn't seen before. And that again, speaks to that excitement and that inner desire to generate something new. Um, So even something like that is creative self-care, whatever you can do to give yourself some space to discover, to uh, think about different perspectives and hold them is creativity. Um, And, and for folks that maybe are, not they wouldn't call themselves artists or artistically inclined but art speaks to them going to the museum and appreciating the art on the wall and thinking about what it means and thinking about how the art in the gallery and the way it's arranged how it all speaks to one another all those different pieces that's creative expression that's creative thought so there are many different ways that individuals can connect with that inner creative spirit and it doesn't have to look like putting a pen to paper and like, you know, as you're describing that, I think of like, you could even exercise creativity while cooking dinner. Absolutely. That's creating absolutely. something out of nothing, essentially. Yes, absolutely. Maybe maybe today you're like, you know what? I've never tried this particular spice combination and I've certainly never done it with a potato. Let's do it. And, you know, you might discover something that is so incredible and different and unique, and you never would have had that before if you hadn't tried it. That is absolute creativity. And um, it's it always boils down to that is you. You made that. You are a unique individual. And that that you've created, that thing that you've generated out of nothing is part of you. Ah, that's That's so special. Yeah, you know, and even thinking about it further, like, one could even be creative with their gender expression. Yes. Um, 
you know, some days I just feel a lot more masculine than I do other days. And on those days, I put on my steel toe work boots and my camo or, you know, yeah. whatever the case may be, um, and express myself in, in that way, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like, you know, in thinking about this, the options really are unlimited. They are infinite. The possibilities are infinite. What what matters is, does this resonate with me as a person? Does this feel like, oh yeah, this is me being able to express myself and and do it in a way that feels so like unique, different. It's it's innovative for me. That that is at the the real crux of this, and it's why creativity is so important too. We have to incorporate it in our day to day life because it is a part of us. And Nor, you're so right. Like the the clothing that we choose to wear, how we choose to express parts of our identity, be it gender identity or cultural identity, like all of these different things. That is creativity, those choices that we're making and how we choose to embody them and express them, creativity. So maybe even, maybe even if we don't have the ability to set aside two hours a week, mm-hmm. maybe if we are more intentional in our day-to-day, then that would help us better recognize these opportunities that naturally come our way day-to-day. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so recognizing those natural opportunities that happen organically in our day-to-day life and appreciating them for that. I, I think like going back to what we were saying before, society and hustle culture puts such an expectation on what should be valued and what should be prioritized um, that it prevents us or it blocks us from being able to appreciate and recognize those small opportunities that can be woven into our day-to-day um, and how, how beautiful they are. And so in the moment, so you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be, I, I, that's the other part that sometimes feels daunting as people feel like, well, I need like three hours to, to paint. And, you know, it would be wonderful if we had three hours that we could dedicate. Um, and I, I would challenge that in some ways too and say like, hey, we probably can find a way to carve out some intentional time for you and that's worthwhile. Um, but you don't need to set aside this big block for it to be a meaningful act of creativity. We, we can find meaning in, in those days-to-day things. This is, this is something my sister introduced me to. Um, it, it's this idea of... Um, I don't even know what to call it. It's like creative scheduling or planning. And so folks will have these planners and will be just so imaginative with how they decorate them and how they, the stickers and the colors that they choose. Like bullet journals? Yeah. Like like that. Yeah. And like they, they'll use stickers or they'll make stickers or they'll do drawings. And like, you know, part of it is they're, they're planning their day or their week or whatnot, but they're doing it in a way that connects with that creative spirit and that's that's what I mean like you can incorporate it in those small steps in those small ways and it makes such a big difference in how we feel about our engagement with our life it sounds like really all all that that takes is a little bit of mindfulness and intention yep mindfulness intention appreciation too like gratitude Gratitude, like, and, and gratitude for ourselves. I, I realized, like, I had a little bit of a reaction of, like, oh, that's going to sound kind of selfish or self-indulgent. But no, I think having gratitude for ourselves and, you know, the fact that we take time to take care of ourselves, 
because that's what enables us to do anything in this world. And whether we're doing things in service of others or working or whatnot, we have to take care of ourselves and it's okay to appreciate ourselves for, for doing that. And creativity is part of that. Like appreciate like, oh my gosh, I, I can do this. I, I want to do this. I'm, I'm choosing to make something and share it with others. Like that's something that's that we should absolutely value and, and appreciate. Yeah. So a lot of people are reluctant to start new creative ventures because of the associated thinking that a lot of people have around the idea of trying new things, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people also struggle with kind of like this fear of failure or perfectionism, um, for example, which can get in the way of that. So what are some examples of the types of thinking that can stop someone from engaging in creative activities? And how do we go about challenging that thinking? Mm-hmm. Oh, some of the classic ones, this, whatever I'm going to do is not going to be good enough. It's going to fail. No one else is going to like it, or this is, feels really silly. Those are some of the, the classic, um, most unhelpful thoughts that I'll, I'll hear from folks or, or I can't stop working on something until it is perfect. And then that just sucks all of the joy and all the spontaneity out of the process. Um, so the, the way that we challenge that is by really starting to recognize where does that expectation come from, right? And then why do we care? <laughs> Which right, is, yeah, yeah. right, like, and that sounds so simple. And I also will acknowledge it's the hardest thing to do because of course we want to be, we want to be validated and we want to be affirmed. And like I, if we're saying before that whatever we generate from this process of creativity, that's a part of ourselves, right? That's so vulnerable to put that out there because if somebody doesn't like it, they're essentially saying, I don't like something about you and that hurts. Like I get that. Right, yeah. And what we have to remember is the, the purpose behind this. Like if I'm going to sit down and do a drawing and maybe an art historian or an art critic out there is going to say that is the ugliest, worst drawing in the history of ever. <laughs> that doesn't matter because for me, it was about, I made the time to do this. I took that blank piece of paper and now there's something on it that wouldn't have been there before if I hadn't done it. And that in and of itself is where the value comes from. If we can shift that, our thinking, that it's less about like, if this has value because somebody else is telling me that it has value and it's more about this has value because I say it has value. It has meaning for me. That is, that's the first step to really being able to challenge all of those, those negative self messages, all of that negativity about the creative process. And it starts chipping away at that fear that you were talking about, Noah, that, that really interferes with the process. And I'll acknowledge like the fear is legit. One of the scariest things to see, whether you're you're a writer, whether you identify as an artist, whether you're you're anyone, is of the blank page or a blank canvas. And it's it's scary because there's so much potential and possibility there. And we have the, the unhelpful thought that I'm gonna screw up that potential. I'm gonna make a, a mistake that's gonna ruin this this opportunity. And just not true, because guess what? There's another blank page behind that and another one behind that and more and more and more infinite blank pages. So who cares if it's not perfect? 
you can always keep making more. And at the end of the day, we start to realize, ah, perfection. It's, it's elusive. It's, it was never real in the first place. And we don't need to spend our time trying to pursue it. It's more about pursuing the passion, pursuing the process. Yeah. And really here, like somebody starting something new in terms of maybe a, a creative self-care uh, like routine or something, really, you know, in, in my work as a therapist, I have narrowed it down to four fears that I see most commonly within my clients. And those are fear of failure, fear of change, fear of the unknown, and fear of rejection. And starting something new like this kind of hits on all those, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It hits on all of those in a really intimate way because, again, if if the creativity is about giving voice to a part of ourselves, then, like, again, we're the ones that are directly in the hot plate in terms of all of those dimensions that you just mentioned. So so it, it makes sense. And, and it makes sense to feel that way. And it also makes sense to challenge that because right. it is part of who you are and that deserves a voice <laughs> in spite of right. all of those fears and, and worries. You deserve to have that voice. That voice deserves to be expressed. And so trying to over, overcome that fear and, and we can go into the whole like CBT thing of like, well, you know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a cognitive distortion. Like we right. convince ourselves that those fears are true and right, they're really right. genuinely not. Right, right. And, you know, self-care is and has been a big topic in the media as of recently. And a lot of people roll their eyes at the idea of self-care. Um, you know, what unhelpful beliefs do, have you found that people have about the idea of self-care that stops them from fully engaging with that? And, and what would you say to those beliefs? Absolutely. I think there's, there's a few that stand out for me. Number one um, that comes up a lot is that self-care is selfish. That somehow if you take out time for yourself, um, you know, there's, there's better things you could be doing for other, other people. And so you're a bad person for doing that. And I, I challenge that right off the bat. I mean, one of the, the common metaphors that I think a lot of folks will use is that idea of, you know, if you're on a plane, they always tell you and if the, if the masks come down for oxygen, make sure you put it on yourself first before you help the person next to you. Same concept with self-care. If you're not doing what you need to do to recharge your batteries, restore your spirit, restore your energy, you're all of those other things that you think were more important that you needed to do or prioritize, you're not going to be able to get there. You're just not going to have more to give. Um, another good saying is you can't pour out of an empty cup because if you don't take time to refill it, it's a dry cup, right? Right. So I try to challenge folks with that, that, and, and self-care in and of itself too. I think some people, the other unhelpful belief is they think self-care is self-indulgence. Like, you know, it's about going and getting your nails done or getting a massage. And while self-care can include those things, remember that at the core, self-care is about giving yourself a chance to recharge your batteries, right? When whatever way that looks like for you, maybe it includes those things, but usually it's, it's not a self-indulgent thing. It's, it's your body physically needs things like rest, quality, healthful, nutritious food, time for creativity and intellectual stimulation. Like you need all of those things 
in order to function as a human being. And um, that's not self-indulgent. That's uh, survival. <laughs> and then yeah. hopefully thrival or thriving. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, because of the pan- pandemic, self-care has become increasingly important for everyone. Why is this? Oh, it's been such a stressful year in so many ways. We've had health concerns. We've had so much stuff happening socially, too, and in terms of what our society and culture is reckoning with right now. Self-care is so important because that impacts us deeply, physically, as well as psychologically. And if we're not taking the time to nourish our, our mind, nourish our heart, nourish our body, uh, we're gonna run out of gas. We're gonna our bandwidth is gonna be stretched so thin. We're not going to be able to engage with life in ways that are meaningful and fulfilling. And so, especially now, I think a, a lot of misconceptions might be that you know we were all staying at home. We shouldn't feel so tired. It's like y'all, we were staying at home. And living with a chronic stressor of not knowing if our family or ourselves, our health was going to be impacted, if loved ones, um, you know, so many of us lost people too during this pandemic. So we're dealing with that grief and loss. We're dealing with the grief and loss around jobs, our our economy, the social unrest that was happening too, and, and confronting things like systemic racism and the fact that, you know, there's so much injustice in this world. That's heavy stuff. And, you know, maybe we were sitting at home, but sitting with that heavy stuff is still a weight on our shoulders that wears on us. So we absolutely have to take care of that. And just from the physical side too, um, going back to this idea about the outdoors being important and that idea of, of movement, sitting at home wasn't great in and of itself. Like we are social creatures that are meant to be out and about and engaging with each other and engaging with nature. And for the most part, for safety reasons, I get it. We were still deprived of that for 18 plus months. Um, and that is so difficult for us as, as human beings because of how we are. Yeah, yeah. How do we make time for self-care we, when we are in a constant hustle and bustle of a schedule? You know, yeah. um, for people who have kids, picking kids up, dropping them off, taking them here, taking them there. I mean, you know, even being a single person, like trying to you know, manage to fit in a walk with my dog every day is even a challenge. So how do we do that? And also more curiously, how is this related to like systemic capitalism? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, the general answer, I think that fits across all of this is we really have to start looking at our personal values. Like what are the things we are prioritizing in our life what are the things that matter most to us and that have true meaning, right? Like in the, in the deep existential sense, like what is it that really inspires us and, and motivates us and moves us? When mm-hmm. we're talking about things like, you know, oppressive capitalism or, you know, hustle culture, all what the value there is, can you produce more, 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 give all you got until you run out and then on to the next person. Uh, that's super problematic because what value is in, enmeshed in that that actually has meaning for us? Um, what actually is fulfilling personally about that? When you know this is very acty, but when you like look back at you, you know at the end of your days and you look back on your life, 
Are you going to say, I, you know, I, I worked a 56 hour work week for 30 years of my life. And that was so great. Um, I would hazard a guess that the vast majority of us would not look back on that. Our memories are going to be, what are the moments with people we care about? What are the moments with our, our loved ones that we care about? What are the moments that for me were so satisfying and, and fulfilling? That's what's going to stand out for us. So to answer your first part of your question, which is, you know, how do we make time for this? is we have to start to recognize and give ourselves permission to prioritize the things that matter most. And that, that's hard because our society is telling us what should matter more to you is that you do an 80-hour work week and that you like never stop producing. Um, nope, <laughs> that is not true. Uh, that maybe benefits someone, but it doesn't benefit us personally. But we have to give ourselves permission to recognize, you know what? These are the things that bring me true joy in my life. These are the moments when I feel most fulfilled. And it's okay for me to prioritize that. Certainly, we have to take care of you know, our personal responsibilities and obligations and all of that. And I'm sure there's, there's more wiggle room than we realize in terms of being able to say no to things that really don't matter for us in the grand scheme of things. So I, I thinking about the example you gave me, like, with, you know, having to pick up kids and stuff, I would imagine for those folks, maybe your, your kids are a number one priority, a core value in your life, but you also want to make time for self-care, mesh the two together. Maybe it's going out as a family and taking a, a walk in a park together. And then now you're enjoying nature and you're doing it with your family. You've, you've brought those two important values together. Um, and that's how we can start to, to make time. The other, the other answer is kind of what I already said. It's okay to say no to things. I, I think as a society, we have a really hard time saying, you know what, this is my limit. I have, you know, put in my, my eight hours and I'm done and that's okay. We need to start being a little bit more assertive with ourselves and, and giving permission to say, I am allowed, I have the right, I have the need to make time for myself and go for it. Now, you know, self-care, I think, has a lot of different definitions, um, you know, and, and after talking today, I hope our listeners can kind of understand that it's a lot more than bubble baths and fuzzy slippers. Um, so when I think about self-care, I think... To me, self-care should not be something that we resort to uh, when we're tired and need a break, mm -hmm. but rather, to me, self-care is making the choice to build a life that you don't regularly need a reprieve from. Yeah. And so some things that I would argue are self-care is saying no, is setting boundaries and having hard conversations making a spreadsheet of your debts, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, you know, in, like making yourself, like holding yourself accountable to stay in a routine, you know, looking at your successes and failures and like re-strategizing and, you know, attempting again, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think self-care is a lot, it's just, it, to me, it encompasses a lot more than what we hear about in, you know, in the general media. What are your Absolutely. thoughts on that? Absolutely. No, I'm over here. I'm like nodding and snapping and <laughs> doing all of the stuff. 
because you are speaking my language. Um, and, and it's so weird to me that I, I'm not quite sure when this shift happened in society, but that we had to come up with a label and call it a certain thing like self-care because somewhere along the way, that just got put on the back seat. This idea of like, you know, even giving yourself space and time to sit down and enjoy a meal. Like even that is compromised in today's society where we're like, we've got only got like 20 minutes, got to wolf it down and go on to the next thing. And, and the truth is like, no, <laughs> self-care might be giving yourself that hour to savor your, your meal. However simple it might be, it might be a, I don't know, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch, but like you take it outside of your office, you're enjoying the, the day and you're savoring the food and you're savoring the moment. Um, I mean, each moment, like even this moment where, that we're in right now, there's only one of them. It's never going to happen again. Um, enjoy or so it. I think. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Um, I'm just feeling being silly. Right? But, <laughs> but, you know, we really don't know. And, and that's the matter of the fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's true. And in, the, in that sense, then if we really don't know, then why not savor it? Why not enjoy it and treat it like it is potentially the, the, the one shot and, and give yourself that opportunity to enjoy it and to give yourself permission to put boundaries so you can enjoy it. So you're, you're absolutely right. Self-care is really about making sure it's it's certainly about protecting time and protecting yourself, but I, I see it in, in a lot of ways. Like I love how you framed it. It's about structuring your day and, and your life so that way you're not just like trying to burn to the next vacation and then you're like, oh, okay, okay, now I'm ready. I'm going to go back in and then duh, go on to the next one. Uh, instead, we really want to be able to enjoy every moment of our life and, and not need that huge reprieve. That's what self-care is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So what are some places in Austin, San Antonio and, and elsewhere in Texas where people might intentionally seek out some creative self-care? Uh, I, I will say in Austin, uh, the first place that comes to my mind is go to that Blanton Museum of Art. It's one of the finest art museums that we've got in the city. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful, intentional space. Like they have really tried to create an environment that encourages and invites reflection, introspection. Um, you know, obviously they do lots of activities and stuff there that might tap into that more tactile sense of, of creativity, like art making and things like that. But even just going in that space and taking that moment for yourself to soak in the artwork and to make those connections, like we were saying earlier, is in and of itself an act of, of creative expression. And the Blanton is a beautiful space to do it in. The Umlauf Sculpture Garden in Austin is another hidden gem that I, I think folks forget about, but you head out there and it's this very verdant, lush space. It's not very big, but there's beautiful like sculptures and you can kind of lose yourself in that space. And so if you really want to think about that as a combination of, you know, doing something artsy and, and creative, but also communing with nature, that's a beautiful spot for it too. In San Antonio, I think about the Japanese tea gardens. That's a wonderful spot. Oh yeah, spot. that's a good one. Mm -hmm. 
it is so pretty and um right now the weather is getting a little bit cooler so this is the perfect time to go it's in that area for for folks who might not be too familiar it's like near uh 281 highway 281 and um i think it's a saint mary's university is nearby and Mm -hmm. the zoo and all of that so really nice part of the city beautiful gardens where you can just lose yourself in that space What's that other museum in San Antonio? Um, I feel like it starts with a W, and I'm totally brain farting on it right now. Well, there's the Witty, and that one The is, Witty, that's the yeah. one I was thinking. Yeah, the Witty is cool. It's, it's more of a natural science museum, and I will say that's also a great creative space, too, because, you know, thinking about expanding our definition of creativity, what is more creative than, than science, right? The fact that we human beings have used their imagination and their ability to entertain different possibilities to understand our world and then be able to explain it to us through whether we're talking about the actual science or whether we're talking about the displays it's a beautiful expression of, of human innovation and creativity so you could even go to a museum like that and that is absolutely an Is that the museum that I'm thinking their grounds are beautiful? Is that the one I'm thinking of? No, you're thinking about the McNay. Yes, the McNay. That's Mm -hmm. the one I'm thinking of. Uh Yeah, the McNay is a beautiful museum. The grounds, like, oh my God, everybody goes there for wedding pictures and things like that. (laughs) So great spot to commune with art and nature as well. So check out the McNay. (laughs) Um, I'm thinking too, like... um, in other cities, other other great spots that are kind of cool to check out. You know, it can even be those quiet little spaces that one might not think about, like the Arboretum and in, mm-hmm. in the Dallas area is really just so it's so charming. And the grounds themselves, again, human creativity and expression and how they've like laid out the grounds and how they plant the flowers and it's a beautiful place to people watch. Also, there's always somebody taking quinceañera photos on the weekend. <laughs> and, oh, you want to see beautiful, creative expression, like the, how those dresses and then the families going and taking the photos. Like, that's that's a wonderful thing to kind of see and experience there, too. So lots of great spots. And it might even just be your neighborhood park. If, if yeah. you have a spot that you haven't visited in a while, Go in and check it out. Look for look for the colors and the foliage. Look for the flowers that are might still be in bloom and and notice it now and then go back out in a few weeks when Texas winter starts to hit. And then what do you notice that's different? Like that, that's such a great creative activity as well. And and who knows what's gonna happen with that this year. Um, but the mm-hmm. other two I wanted to mention were um, the Museum of Modern Art in Houston is one mm-hmm. of my favorites. I love, love the Rothko Chapel that's yes! right by there. Yes. Oh, no, I'm so, so glad good. you said that. I love that space. They've renovated it. I haven't been since they've renovated it. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I heard the secondhand, so I can't confirm the story. But they renovated the Rothko, so I'm not sure what it looks like now. I don't but- know how I feel about that. I I have mixed vibes. Also, you'll ha- I'll pop back in 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 a few weeks as a guest <laughs> spot and let you know once I go check it out. But such a great space to go and sit and meditate and be in the moment. So highly recommend that for your listeners. And you know, I think even like like camping mm-hmm. to me, I think is kind of I think camping can be a very creative or backpacking or you know whatever it is that you do in the outdoors 
I think that can also be very creative because I think about, you know, like even building a fire, like, have you ever Mm -hmm. built a fire? Like the creativity and like, you know, knowledge that you have to put into building a proper fire to me, there's something just simply rewarding about that. You're creating something out of nothing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, that that taps into some stuff that's maybe a little bit more primal too. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes back to, you know, millions of years ago as humans are evolving and that sense of, of being able to, I mean, create fire at that time is like, it was the ultimate creative expression that had a huge impact on how human history unfolded. Um, So that, and camping brings us back to that. Like it's a pretty, it's a pretty great experience and definitely creative. And and when you're out there in the wilderness, you've, you've got to be creative to figure out how to navigate all of that. MacGyver. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh, MacGyver. Um, So like, you know, we talked a little, a little bit earlier about, you know, incorporating like kids into some sort of creative self-care and, and thinking and taking that a little bit further, how can folks engage in some creative self-care from home and or with friends or family? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can, you can start small. It doesn't have to be big things. Um, for folks that are still uh, being cautious and, and justifiably so with the Delta variant and all of that, it could be having Zoom get-togethers and, you know, taking a moment to maybe do... Um, I'm definitely thinking a little bit more visual arts, but like you can follow along with different kind of creative paintings on, on YouTube and you can try to create it on your, on your own and then share with your friends or family over Zoom, like this is what we made. Um, so that's kind of a simple, fun activity. And I've, I've tried that and it's, it's pretty great. Um, sounds like fun. Oh, it's super, it's super fun. And it's, it's low key and low pressure and, you know, right. just acknowledge like this is about you know, creating together and who knows what's going to come from it and <laughs> have fun with it. Um, incorporating small things in your, your day to day. Like kids are so great about being creative and spontaneous. Like I feel like I don't have to give too much uh, advice or recommendations to folks who have access to kids because their <laughs> imagination is going to go. And you just, if you just open yourself up to that experience, they will take you to all sorts of imaginative creative spaces. But for adults, we can be intentional. If, if we feel comfortable about having folks come over and say you want to do a dinner party, oh my gosh, make it, make it a potluck and somebody brings something special that they've made. You, you put a little bit of a rule on it. Nothing pre-made from H-E-B. Just you have to make something. And it can be something small. It doesn't have to be like a major thing. Like maybe you made a tuna salad, but you made it. And that's, that's what matters. And now you bring something that you've made and you're sharing it with others and you're enjoying it together. Oh, that's, that's one of the best things in life, in my opinion. Um, you know, another thing that came to mind as we were talking about this, I, I remember from my art history class, um, you know, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, the whole, um, the whole game that artists used to play like at their parties, the exquisite corpse, right? Oh, yes. Like, like where somebody starts out drawing something and then the paper is passed to the next person and they draw and like people continue the drawing until it's done, you pass it around. Um, I think that's a really fun activity and also like creative. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I will share it. I'm so glad you, you brought that up Noah, because I was thinking um, this actually happened in, in art school was the first time that I got exposed to this idea of like, you started drawing and then you pass it on to the next person and they'll add something to it. And that's so anxiety provoking. When you let it go, you're like, Oh my gosh, what are they going to do? Or what are they going to think about what I've done? And like, ah, and that can be so stressful. And then you realize, no, it's actually really fun. And it's amazing to see what people come up with. And especially if you do it with a group of folks that you you trust and that you care about, it, you see some really cool things emerge from that shared art making experience. Yeah. And uh, that really challenges those ideas, that, that, that anxiety about like, oh no, this isn't going to be good enough. Um, and you do that a few times and like, nope, I don't have that anxiety anymore. This is actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that that's like, I, I just think that that helps. Like, I just think we feel so connected when we create together, you know? Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else that you want to say um, on creativity as self-care before we go into the next section? No, not, not really. Maybe just again, another reminder, like this, this matters in, in our lives. Um, and, you know, thinking about stuff that we prioritize in our day to day, how much of those things that we're prioritizing are things that we actually really deeply care about and how many of those might be things we could let go of at least a little bit to make some space for things like creativity that actually really are more meaningful and engaging, um, so strongly encourage folks to to make some time for that because it's not selfish, it's not self-indulgent, it's nourishing, it's restorative. Awesome. Okay, well, shifting gears to you as a therapist, what modalities do you draw upon? I mean, it sounds like art therapy for sure, but tell us a little more. Sure. So I will, I will definitely say I do art in therapy, um, art, art therapy in and gotcha. of itself as its own kind of discipline and, and own training. And I'm not trained in that, but, but I do incorporate the arts. Um, I will say this sometimes surprises folks. I am a definitely a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, so a lot of CBT and ACT, those two mesh together really nicely for me. Um, and so I incorporate art and will use art in all sorts of different ways to still get at those core therapeutic concepts of like, what are the unhelpful thoughts that keep us stuck, the unhelpful beliefs that don't allow us to, to grow and engage in life? So I'm, I'm definitely more of that kind of a therapist, a little bit okay. of the, the in, interpersonal process type, but um, I'm pretty anchored in the CBT. Cool. I'm, I would say CBT is a, something I draw upon, but definitely I wouldn't call myself like a traditional CBT therapist. That's fair. I think a lot of people think CBT therapists are all manualized and some people are, um, and they'll like be really structured and rigid in those things. I'm, I'm definitely not super structured and, and rigid. <laughs> And I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like, you know, looking at my, my ability to, what, what's that called? Like fidelity to the modality. I'm like, yeah, eh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the core, the way that I, I, I conceptualize the things that keep us stuck um, or that, that get us stuck and then keep us stuck is very much anchored in that relationship between our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, oh, how man. we tackle that. And now we can get exciting and creative with that. Um. 
So my next question, it sounds like you're very social justice oriented. So, um, and, and I like for our listeners to know because it's helpful when looking for a therapist, right? Yeah. Um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender and documented or BIPOC to name a few examples? Yeah. So um, I, we've already hinted at it. I don't think I explicitly self-identified, but I am a member of the Latinx community and, and bilingual. So I have a lot of experience predominantly serving um, our community, um, mostly because there's a really big need for that, um, uh, especially in, in parts of Austin where they're more under underrepresented communities and they don't they have limited access to care like i've i've done some work in federally qualified healthcare centers and um it's really meaningful work and it's really needed work <laughs> because like i said there's often not a lot of providers who are bilingual or, or who are willing to work with our, our community so i i'm personally very invested in that also, I've done a lot of work with LGBTQ plus identifying clients, and and certainly I, I would say the vast majority of my clients have been BIPOC or BIPOC identifying. Um, again, because I think there's something to be said about representation, and when there's aspects of our identity that where we can connect with others, that makes a really big difference. I totally agree, hundred percent. Um. A lot of people get nervous about their first sessions with a therapist. To help with that anxiety, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Absolutely. My, my first, my first um, session with folks and the, the first way that I approach it is like, let's acknowledge like it is a little bit weird. Like you're talking to a stranger that maybe you've never spoken to before and you're going into some pretty deep stuff and that's weird we don't do that in, in polite society as they say um but what i would encourage folks is at least when you're working with me this is all about you this is your space you're never pressured to share more than what you feel would be helpful for you at that time or the helpful for me to know in order to help you and it's okay for us to go as slow as we need to go the first session is always a little bit more about me, you know, asking more questions than I typically would in a counseling session because we're, we're trying to get a sense together of what's been going on and what would we like to see different in your life. So come prepared with some goals, like, and, and that's not like you don't have to come with a whole list, but it's more like if you, if there was something in your life that you would like to see different, what would that be? And how do you think counseling might be able to help you with that? That if you come in with that, that's wonderful. That's already a head start to the counseling process. And if you don't come in with that, that's okay because I'm going to ask you and we're going to figure that out together. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. So first session is always very collaborative. Like I said, this is, this is for you. This is about figuring out what you're needing and wanting in counseling. And then we come up with that game plan together. Um, and then subsequent sessions are all about trying to, to move you towards those goals and get you feeling better or achieving things that you want to achieve and all of that good stuff. Um, and then I like to be really transparent with folks and say like, okay, this is what I'm thinking in terms of number of sessions. We can change that later. Um, ultimately, here's, here's my not so secret secret goal. I want to work myself out of a job. I, I don't right. want you to have to be in counseling forever because I right. want you out there enjoying life. So 
I talk a lot about like what our time frame looks like, not that we have to rush. This is one of the blessings of private practice because I've worked in and not accepting insurance. And not accepting insurance, <laughs> amen. Because it gives us time to work through that stuff. And other places will be like, well, you had your six sessions by and you're like, we just scratched the surface. Oh my goodness. So we, we can take our time and we're also working towards that goal of like, I, I want you to feel better and I want you to enjoy your life and, and get you on your way to doing so. <laughs> yep. Yep. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I actually had a client once <laughs> and, and cause like, I often think about that. I was like, I, you know, how would clients describe me? One person told me once that I reminded them of a professor and I was like, what? And she said, no, 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 not in the bad way. It's just this one professor was like really, really smart, but also really funny and kind of like sarcastic in the good way. And also really creative. And I love that class. So that's why I said that. And I'm like, oh, those are all in the fields. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. So I would, I would lean into that. And, and hopefully um, people experiencing me or experience me as, as caring and committed because ultimately that's why I got into this gig. I, I care about people's stories. It's a, it's a privilege to be a witness to the resilience and strength that people have and um, I always want to honor that in, in those moments. So my, my hope is that's what I am for my clients. Okay, cool. Now, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And when I, I want to clarify crying, when I say cry, I don't mean like bawling and sobbing <laughs> uncontrollably. I mean, just even a single tear rolling down your face. Yes. Yeah. I will. I will admit like I'm, I'm definitely cautious about it because um, cautious in the sense that I always want that space to be about my clients. That is about them and their needs. I never want yes. them to feel that they have to take care of me or that I can't handle what we're talking about. Um, that being said, I will laugh. I, I use sense of humor appropriately. And, and if clients are, are cool with that, if they're also a little bit more on the sense of humor side, and I, I will share in sadness. I will share in, in grief. Um, I'm, actually, I'm actually thinking about some situations in particular where like you, you have to sit with this with your clients and how can we not feel that with them and, and be able to emote with them. Um, so yes, the, the answer is a wholehearted, absolute yes, no. <laughs> cool. Okay. One of my favorite questions how do you define holding space for someone? Mm. I like that question because um, this is something that I learned early on in my graduate training is I am a talker and I know this is also a cultural as well as a personal thing where part of how I hold the space is by showing I'm engaged in it by like dogging into it. <laughs> So the way that I, I hold it now is I'm, I'm authentic to myself and, and who I am, but I'm also okay with that space just being what the client needs in that moment. And sometimes that means me just sitting with them in silence while they internally work through some stuff before they're ready to open up. And sometimes it means joining with them and we, we dive into that conversation openly and deeply. Um, but it's, it's governed by what the client is, is needing. And, 
And so I guess the short answer to that is I hold the space for the client by allowing them to create the space that they're needing and then being willing to engage in that. And so that sounds a little bit, you know, deep, but really all it means is what you need. I'm there with you and we'll be there together. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Um, the best advice I ever received from a supervisor, I've, really, I've had, I've blessed, like I've had lots of really good supervisors. I think the, the one that stays with me most is I had a supervisor that really encouraged me to start to appreciate that this is, this is, this is going to sound a little bit deep, but it's appreciate the fact that I'm there with a client and really recognizing that there's value in that and that there's value in the sense that me, myself as a human being, am wanting to be in a space with someone else and listen and attend because I genuinely care about that person. And and she really framed it for me as like, you know how rare that is in real life, unfortunately, that, you know, many folks will go through their day to day and nobody asks how they feel. Nobody really, they ask how you're doing, but they don't mean it in the sense of like, I care, tell me what's going on so I can be there with you. And, oh, I'd never heard anything like that before. And I had always thought about myself as like, well, what tools can I give people? Like, that's the thing that matters most. And, and that supervisor really, you know, empowered me to realize that, I matter in that too. And the fact that I am a human being that cares about another human, that that's important because it's so, it feels so rare in this world that that kind of really just, I mean, it stays with me to this day. Some good advice. Mm -hmm. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I have learned, and I feel like I'm still learning. So there's a little bit of a. a we all are. I mean, we I all think, are. <laughs> I mean, I think we. I think especially as therapists, we have to continue to grow and learn throughout our lives in order to um, continue to to help. You know, to be yeah. of some sort of assistance. Ab- absolutely. Um, And that's kind of what I've learned. I think I thought that, you know, once you graduate and you get your license and you're ready to go, you have arrived. And what I've learned, or really like deeply internalized, because I think I, I knew this on an intellectual level, but it's really internalizing it and realizing like, oh, this is what it means, is you never arrive you're always learning and always growing and everybody has something to teach you. I learn from my clients every single session. Um, Every, every single session, they teach me something about the beauty of humanity, the wonder of resilience and strength. Um, Some, and sometimes it's simple things that they'll, they'll teach me that I was like, Oh my gosh, I never knew that about our world or about this little thing. Um, and even those small things are so special and, and humbling in the good way. And that's, like I said, I think I knew that on an intellectual level. And over the past few years, I've really just realized like, oh, that's what that means. That's what this feels like. Um, and that's such a good, humble feeling. Yeah, for sure. Now, what do you do to take care of yourself? And that's kind of a 
first que- first part of this question, what do you do to take care of yourself? And secondly, is there something that you have to do for yourself after a long day? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So self-care, I try to practice what I preach. I try to take care of like getting some regular exercise, making time for my creative self, making time for some fun, silly stuff. Like, um, for example, I'm going to self-disclose. I love me some Legend of Zelda. I will play nice. Breath of the Wild. And I love it. I know it's like an old game. I will. I will. Oh, it's such a beautiful game. Um, making time for that stuff matters. And it doesn't have to be volumes of hours, but just, just a few moments here and there is so refreshing. So I do all of that stuff because that's what I encourage my clients to do. And I, I want to walk the talk in lots of ways. Um, in terms of the other things that I do to kind of take care of myself and, and restore my batteries here too, I am a foodie and I love good food. I love cooking. I love eating <laughs> and I love sharing with others. So um, always th- this is during the pandemic. I baked so much like everybody was getting bread. Everybody was getting cookies. <laughs> everybody was getting all of the stuff because Again, like that's very creative too, but there's something about sharing food with others. Like it's so personal. It's so loving. Like you took time to make something for somebody or somebody took time to make something for you um, that I absolutely love that. Um, And food is so yummy. Oh my goodness. Especially especially when we talk about all the different Latino foods out there. I was like, I will eat all that. It's so good. (laughs) Oh gosh. Don't even, don't even get me started. Bananas. Ah. I made I made picadillo last night. <laughs> I'm coming over. Uh, my favorite is uh, I don't know if, if Puerto Ricans eat this too, um, but guayaba. Oh yeah, pata de guayaba with yes. um, uh, queso blanco, the white cheese. Yes. So I, good. I, I I eat it with cream cheese. I don't know if you've tried that. Delicious. A lot of I Cuban pastries it. are made with that. Oh my gosh, I've never tried it with cream cheese. I will totally do it because we should put it. Oh man, okay. All right. Putting it You've on my been doing it wrong. I've <laughs> been doing it wrong. I always thought the queso blanco because you can get like, oh, there's that good one at, at um, HEB, like La Vaquita, I think it is. It's so creamy yeah, yeah, yeah. and delicious. I love it. But now with cream cheese, you, you've opened a new world. Oh, you've got to, you, you, if you have never tried any Cuban pastries, oh. oh. <sighs> Uh, I'll why. be the Italian part of me and go, Mwah. <laughs> <laughs> This is why we need we need a good Cuban bakery somewhere no. in Texas. There must Houston be one. has has quite a few. Um, whenever I go to Houston, I have to stop and, and get some. But yeah, um, try it with cream cheese. When you do it, let me know what you okay. think. Okay, I will do this. I will. <laughs> I will. I will be like, here's my play by play, and here's what happened. Ate the whole bar of cream cheese and the whole <laughs> can of the guayaba. <laughs> I can say that has happened to me before, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I- I'm sorry, were you finished a- a- answering the last question? Okay. Um, how would you define happiness? Oh, that's a that's a tough question because. Um, I'm going to answer it for me. And the asterisk there is like happiness is going to be different for everybody. I think um, 
you know, this is a very therapist-y answer, but the truth is we feel most happy, I think, when we're connected to our values and living a life that really lines up with that. And so that can look really different for, for everybody. Um, for me, I'm happiest. For me, happiness is so many special moments with, you know, the, the loved ones that matter most to me. Like I, I think about like the time, like circling back to where we started, like the time that I've had with all of my, my, you know, fur babies throughout my life, like our pets and our, those are loved ones or family members. That means so much. I think about times with my family and, Oh, even special moments with clients where like we're celebrating something together or we're in sadness together, but there's that connection and that sharing. And that's when I feel most happy and fulfilled. I think that's when my life is really aligned with the things that matter most to me and, and what brings me joy. And of course, when I'm when I'm creating and I'm doing so in a way that's really like pure in the sense of like I'm making something that's just for the sake of of creating and for enjoying. It's not to make a product for someone else. It's not to do something that um, others were think is is amazing. It's because it's something that I love and I wanted to do. And and that those moments are when you feel really, really happy and just really connected in lots of ways. So that's happiness for me. And I know that's going to look different for lots of folks. Um, well, I, I think it's a very existential question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Eh, it's it's existential. It's deep, and it's okay if it changes over time too. I think lots of people sacrifice a lot in the the idea of this pursuit of happiness. Right? They make a lot of sacrifices, or they make choices that they think are going to lead to to happiness, or. And what they've really done is conflate happiness with things like financial success and right, meeting right. milestones and blah, blah, blah. And um, maybe for some folks, that is where they feel true happiness. I, I won't take that away from somebody if that's what matters most to them. But I think for a lot of us, we've, we've confused the two. Mm-hmm. And it's not a place that you get to and stay, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's- uh, it, it's to me at least happiness is fleeting and and that's just the the very nature of it and that's why like I feel like we have to cherish those moments mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and you you can't and this is so, I mean, we think about duality throughout nature and in life. And and this is one of those cases where you really can't have happiness without suffering to some degree, right? I think we all need to know sadness in order to know happiness. And that's, that's painful and, and difficult. I, I, I realize that, but I, I think it's true to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple vulnerable questions. Mm-hmm. Um, first one is, what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician to date? <laughs> this is a hard question because, <laughs> you know, I think about like, oh, what are like some of the silliest ones that I've had? Um, and, and I kind of almost wish like I had some that were a little bit more juicy and more embarrassing. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's some classic ones like, uh, I remember uh, this one, like, and it's not even like that juicy, but like, I remember 
um, having a client that I hadn't seen for a really long time and I just could not remember anything about this client and I didn't take the time to review the chart and I remember sitting across from this person and being like, oh my gosh, this is so awful. Like, have, have we even met before? And I was so in my head. No, this was so embarrassing. I was so in my head the whole time, like trying to think about all the stuff and like, have I ever met before and all this and that. And then eventually, like they said something that triggered my memory. And I remembered, oh, like I only saw them like one time and it was like over a year ago. Like, no wonder I don't have any memories about it. <laughs> But then I was like, but what were we just talking about for the past 20 minutes? Because I was all <laughs> up here thinking like, oh my gosh, what, what happened and why am I not remembering this person? So nah, not a very exciting, embarrassing story, but like that one stays with me of like, dang, Iris, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's anything else that happens in the future, you yeah. let me know because uh, that you feel is like good enough, you know, like oh. a good enough embarrassing moment. Well, well, all right. This is not my story to share, so I can't give details, but a classic one would be um, if someone, if a therapist were to pass gas in a session, how would you handle that with the clients? Therapeutically, I think. I'm waiting for that moment. When that happens, then I'm going to come back and be like, everyone, I have a juicy story to share. Hopefully it's not juicy. Good God. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't help. That was great. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, next vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes, this is. So uh, this question comes up a lot. And I will say, I will say, couple. there's a couple of ways to answer this. And um, number one is I'm totally cognizant and aware of the fact that I, I think, especially like in the Latinx community, there's a little bit of stigma around mental health seeking. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll totally recognize and, and own that as part of my community and recognize that that has kind of impacted me in some ways. So professionally, no, I have not been in therapy. However, I have been in therapy in other ways. And so this is where I encourage folks to think a little bit more broadly about what therapy might look like for you. And that could be whether or not you're engaging in a self-care practice or if you're you know, connecting with mentors and mentorship and you're using, you know, elders in your community for that guidance and the support, which, you know, I have done. And, and that for me has been really healing um, a little bit different from going out and, and seeking professional counseling in that regard. But that for me has been very therapeutic and very restorative for me. So I just encourage folks like, you know, even as a therapist, I always say, think about what's going to be most healing and helpful for you. And it, it's okay to make that choice and, and what's best for you. And, and I say this totally owning and, and recognizing a, a little bit is quite a vulnerable question. And there's a little bit of fear in, in answering and disclosing this because I think sometimes there's some, some judgment, at, at least certainly in what I experienced like in my graduate training program, where if you're not actively in therapy, that's, that's something somehow wrong. And um, so I, I'm kind of just sitting with that too. Well, I mean, I think that it is helpful in being a therapist to understand what that experience is like 
But I think that experience can also be experienced in other contexts too. Like you were saying, like talking to, um, you know, perhaps elders in your community and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I mean, shit, even like, even like going to see like the curandero, you know, exactly. like that can be a vulnerable experience similar to therapy as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I did have one, one mentor in graduate school who was really a, a big advocate of people kind of redefining what we think of as therapy or uh, the way she would frame, frame it is, you know, I should say, I, I encourage you all to expand your mind around what you think is therapy or what you consider therapy. And that always stayed with me because I think ultimately therapy and, and this, this work that we do is you are connecting with another human being. You're trying to figure stuff out. You're trying to find a way that to navigate life in, in a way that's most meaningful for you. And you're, you're addressing maybe things like anxiety and depression along the way. But it's in that process of you're, you're talking it through with someone. And I'm like, Oh, we we can do that in so many different ways. We can do that processing in so many different ways. So, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think really primarily what therapy is, and the reason why um, I think being in therapy is important for therapists is to understand what that experience is like, to understand like even just the bases of power dynamics within those relationships. But like I said. those same like dynamics can be experienced in other contexts. I mean, also depending on like your culture, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to go um, seek out your elders and confide in them for something. There's definitely a power dynamic in that sort of um, relationship too, you know? So I I can, I can understand that. And also like sometimes like if you don't need therapy, you don't need therapy, like, you know, um, but I definitely recommend it just for that experience. It's weird, you know? Yeah. No, I, it's, it's not even, I wouldn't even say it's weird. I think it's, it's incredibly valuable. And I think like having, having that space to, to do it and, and I, you know, a lot of people will say like, you don't really know what it's like until you you see it from the other side. So this is definitely something for me to kind of reflect on and think about, well, maybe it's time for me to incorporate that in my own, as part of my own self-care. Yeah. And when I said, said weird, what I mean is like, to me, the whole idea, like when I really sit with it and think about it and I think about my job, like mm-hmm. our job is just so weird. It is. Like, <laughs> I, it, 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 the very basis of it is weird. Like people come, they talk to us, we help them work through their stuff. Um, and it's just a very strange profession in my opinion. I mean, very valuable and like all the good things in the world, but still just a little weird compared to to other professions. Totally, totally, totally get it. And that's why like, I think for folks that have never been in counseling before, it feels extra like, oh, what do we do in that first session? Because it is unusual. It's not something that we typically do. Yeah, yeah. Well, Iris, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you or your practice? Oh, gosh. Um, offhand, no, nothing new is coming to my mind. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that maybe I kind of missed or wanted to touch on. Um, 
no, I, I think we, we covered so much, Noah. We've, we've talked yeah, we to a range of, of life today. <laughs> <laughs> we sure have. Um, well, thank you, Iris, so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Noah. Thank you for listening to NextQuest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. NextQuest Podcast will be going on a four-week break before starting Season 5, which will be posted on November 22nd, 2021. Episode 1 of Season 5 will feature Hannah Del Toro, licensed clinical social worker, who will be talking about her practice and an area of interest, the wisdom of anxiety. NextQuest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources, Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www dot nextquestcounseling.com slash about nextquest podcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.